Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea. A new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, deep political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually... Um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. I do think it's kind of interesting that you see toleration, liberality against fanaticism and persecution and education and enlightenment. You know, you see those things talked about in Freemasonry so much, and we see that so much in the media now. And it kind of goes back to uh, how I say that everything... And it kind of goes back to how I think that everything goes too far, usually. Movements go too far, people go too far when they get with different organizations. And so, there was a time when we could have used more toleration. We needed more education. You know, we needed to uh, not be as closed-minded. Those days are long, long gone. And so now we are in a time of anything goes and there are no moral and now we're in a time of there and now we are in a time of anything goes and there are no moral absolutes we're pretty much in crowley's time do what thou will shall be the whole of the law right do what makes you feel good and really if you are surrounded by anyone you love it's impossible to just always do exactly what you want without hurting them, without causing strife and trouble. It's just one of those things about being human and sharing this world with others. And that's not to say that I don't think you should have free will to do what you want as long as you're not hurting others. God gave us free will for a purpose. So we can choose. We can choose whom we serve. We can choose who we love. We can choose what we want to do with our lives. But there is certainly a liberal and almost socialist communist bent to Freemasonry. 
and this universal brotherhood. And of course, I say, you know, on the out, you know, on, of course, I say on the outside that this whole oneness idea sounds great and you know everything, but there's just no way they would work, of course, because the people in charge would always usurp more and more power, and you see it all throughout history. And I have to say once again, as much as I think the Egyptian religion, the Egyptian lore, history is fascinating, you have to go back and be realistic that they were imperialists for 30 dynasties. And their kings ruled, and they ruled and had information, and probably made up information, and kept it from the regular people so they could rule over them. So when we see the eye in the pyramid, when we see the Horus symbol, or other Egyptian symbols, yes, they're very interesting. We'd have to realize that the people who probably made these up were imperialists were slaveholders and as i said 30 dynasties they ruled like that so it's funny that these freemasons who pretend to be against the catholic church pretend to rail against kings we see that so many of the royalty and so many kings in the modern era have been freemasons and have been involved with these mystery schools. So I think that should be kept in mind as well because, you know, they think about, because the way Freemasonry and some of the mystery schools portray the Egyptian kings and the Egyptian lore is if it was always this wonderful utopia. And, of course, we may don't, and of course, we're not privy to knowing everything about the history, but we know they had their rulers and usurpers and enslaved and slaveholders. You go back to Pike in his book Liturgy. He says, You will hereafter learn who you are the chief foe. You will hear you will hereafter learn who are the chief foes of human liberty, symbolized by the assassins of the master Hiram, Hiram Abiff. And in their fate you may see foreshadowed that which we earnestly hope will hereafter overtake those enemies of humanity against whom masonry has struggled so long. You know, obviously, it's like they're trying to indoctrinate you slowly, into being some sort of soldier. The color of the apron and collar, white edge with black, are also symbolical of the contest in the universe of things between light and darkness, good and evil, truth and error, a struggle which commenced with time and is typified in masonry by the efforts and anxiety of the aspirant to attain the light. Pike also says, Clothed in the habiliments, Pike also says, Clothed in the habiliments, which is defined as the dress or attire of mourning, 
the columns of the temple shattered and prostrate, and the brethren bowed down in the deepest dejection represent the world under the tyranny of the principle of evil, where king and priest trample on liberty and the rights of conscience. But, you know, like I said, so many Freemasons have been kings. So what does it all even mean? You know, I talked about, in one of my episodes, John Robeson and Born in Blood, the book he wrote about Freemasonry. And Eberson actually talks a little bit in there about Robeson, and he mentions that he actually became a Freemason and was actually honored with the 33rd degree. So kind of wonder about some of the things I read in his book. Was he already a Mason? Was he already, you know, had he already decided which side he was going to take before he wrote that book? I don't know. But uh, it's something to also think about. Everson mentions Lux et Tenebri, Lux et Tenebri, which he says means light out of darkness. And as we've talked about in different degrees, they talk about, what are you searching for? I'm searching for the light. You're always going towards the light. You're told in masonry to go towards the light. Go towards the east. And different writers like Pike and Wilmhurst talk about no moral absolutes. But on page 737, Pike says, God can exist only in virtue of a supreme and inevitable reason. That reason, then, is absolute, for it is in it we must believe. So, they don't believe in absolutes. They do believe in absolutes. It's, it's kind of interesting. I don't know. Pike says on 296, Faith and reason are antagonists and hostile to each other. And Epperson says, once again, his religion teaches that faith is aligned with darkness, while reason is aligned with light. So, they, they did turn reason into almost like a religious belief like reason became kind of their their god and as i mentioned on one of the episodes the age of reason became unreasonable uh, you know that's just one of those things where people take things too far right you don't forget pike said on 102 satan this is not a person but a force created for good but which may serve as evil. It is the instrument of liberty or free will. But we have to think about light. Always talking about light. And as we're always talking about light, remember that there was a book written called Darkness Visible. I believe it was by a Catholic priest or former Catholic priest. And it was on Freemasonry. It was a very popular book. Again, another book kind of hard to find, and you're going to pay a pretty penny for it. And it seems that so many times these books that have really good, unique information are very expensive and out of print, unfortunately. But in the third degree, it's the ceremony of raising. The Mason is told that the light of a Master Mason is darkness visible, and that's where that title comes from. And they got that from that phrase from Paradise Lost by Milton. A dungeon horrible on all sides round as one great furnace flamed. Yet those flames, no light, but rather darkness visible, served only to discover sights of woe. Pretty interesting, huh? You know, I've been looking through 
a book called The Master's Carpet, or it's got two titles, Masonry and Baal Worship, identical. And it was by a guy named Edmund Ronain, and he was a Freemason and actually wrote Freemason manuals. But he had a change of heart, and he wrote this book, pretty thick book, about 300, 400 pages, and he wrote it after he had a son, and I guess he started delving deeper into Freemasonry and decided that he did not want his son to become a Mason, so he wrote this book as if he was writing it to his son, and his son was asking him questions about Freemasonry. And this book is old. I think it dates back to the late 1800s, but it's really got some good information if you've got the patience to parse through it, and I'm three-quarters of the way through it. And he proves in there, he actually goes through different initiations, and what he does actually, as he kind of equates some of the Masonic belief systems and Masonic writings with what he calls Romanism, it's like Catholicism, and how they have a lot more in common than you would think, and they do, as he goes through these. But I've mainly focused on Freemasonry at this point in time, which I may indeed go back through one day and try and you know look at the similarities between Romanism and Freemasonry. And, and Johnny Cerucci might be a good source to have on if we do that. But, you know, he has some great quotes in here. He quotes tons of Masonic writers. And I think that that is, is good because some of these books were probably current at the time he wrote this book and would be hard to kind of pull out and find all these quotes nowadays. So I think that it's definitely worth having in your arsenal if you'd like to read about Freemasonry. He's talking about the obligations again and the oaths of Freemasonry. He says in the Philo Craft degree, you have to say, I furthermore solemnly promise and swear that I will stand to and abide by all laws, rules, and regulations of the Philo Craft degree so far as the same shall come to my knowledge. He says again in the Master Mason's Obligation, Section 2, I furthermore solemnly promise and swear that I will conform to and abide by all the laws, rules, and regulations of the Master Degree and of the Lodge of which I may hereafter become a member and that I will ever maintain and support the Constitution, laws, and edicts of the Grand Lodge under which the same shall be holden so far as the same shall come to my knowledge. To all of this, I most solemnly and sincerely promise and swear with a firm and steadfast resolution to keep and perform the same without any equivocation, mental res reservation, or secret evasion of mind, whatever binding myself under no less than a penalty than that of having my body severed in twain, my bowels taken from thence and burned to ashes, and the ashes scattered to the four winds of the heavens, so that no more trace or remembrance might be had of so vile and perjured a wretch as I, should ever I knowingly or willingly violate or transgress this my solemn obligation as a master mason, so help me God, and keep me steadfast in the due performance of the same. So, 
you know, you're constantly being told you have to swear to the lodge. He says in this, oh, let's see, what makes you a fellow craft? Your answer, my obligation. What makes you a master mason? Answer, my obligation. And he has the references for the Masonic handbooks. He says in Webb's Masonic Monitor, page 196, the first duty of the reader of this synopsis is to obey the edicts of his Grand Lodge. Right or wrong, his very existence as a Mason hangs upon the obedience to the powers immediately set above him. The one unpardonable crime in a Mason is disobedience. In Mackey's Lexicon of Freemasonry, page 404, Mackey says, The religion then of Masonry is pure theism on which its different members engraft their own peculiar opinions. But they are not allowed to introduce them into the lodge or to connect their truth or falsehood with the truth of Masonry. But, you know, you are told by Masons all kinds of different things to believe. So he also mentions something that I've talked about how Pike went through and redid the degrees because there were generally hundreds of different degrees from all the different lands who had adopted Freemasonry. And Mackey says in Lexicon of Freemasonry, Traditions, the legends or traditions of Freemasonry, constitute a very considerable and important part of its ritual. In many instances, these traditions have been corrupted by anachronisms and other errors which have crept into them. All that can be claimed for them is that in some there is a great deal of truthful narrative, more or less overlaid with fiction. But you have to swear allegiance to your lodge and to the craft. Remember Colossians 8 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And he starts talking about the new birth in Freemasonry. And they talk about the new birth in Freemasonry. It is basically being born again. They also have a baptism. And Mackey says in the Manual of the Lodge, regarding this being born again, or new birth as they call it, there he stands without our portals on the threshold of his new Masonic life in darkness helplessness and ignorance, having been wandering amid the errors and covered over with the pollutions of the outer and profane world, he comes inquiringly to our doors, seeking the new birth, and asking a withdrawal of the veil which conceals divine truth from his uninitiated sight. And he says again, on page 21, masonry stands before the neophyte in all the glory of its form and beauty, and to be fully revealed to him, however, only when the new birth has been completely accomplished. So yes, you've got to be born again in Freemasonry. It says, Worshipful Master, in the name and under the auspices of the Supreme Council of the Sovereign Grand Inspectors General, of the 33rd and last degree, I proclaim these children to be purified by Masonic baptism and anointed with the oil of consecration to Masonic duty. Proclaim it along your columns, brethren, senior and junior wardens, 
and charge all free and accepted Masons over the surface of the two hemispheres to know and acknowledge them as such. I just think it's interesting, you know, I never knew that they did their baptisms and believed that they had to be born again or called it the new birth, which is the same exact thing. And this is another very interesting thing. It seems that they have a belief in Masonic saints. Yeah, you heard that right. Masonic saints, even more so than saints, like sinless. You can become sinless, okay? In the Lexicon of Freemasonry by Albert Mackey, page 16, under the word Acacian. Acacian, a term signifying a Mason who by living in strict obedience to the obligations and the precepts of the fraternity is free from sin. thought that was pretty interesting. And I've read, I think it was in Epperson's book, a little bit more about that and how your sins can be overlooked or forgiven. Or if you sin against someone who's not a Mason, it's not really a sin in certain conditions. And I think I might have even read a little bit about that on here. But uh, he mentions also in uh, one of Mackey's books, Lexicon of Freemasonry, that he says, A Christian Mason is not permitted to introduce his own peculiar opinions with regard to Christ's meditorial office into the Lodge. And in the manual of the Lodge, it says, Always hail, ever conceal, and never reveal our little senseless secrets. In the handbook of the Masons, he says, If your wife or child or friend should ask you anything about your initiation, for instance, if your clothes were taken off, if you were blindfolded, if you had a rope around your neck, etc., you must always emphatically deny everything. You must conceal, hence, of course, you must deliberately lie about it. It is part of your obligation Nevertheless, but you know if you live in strict obedience to your obligation, you will be free from sin. Furthermore, that I will obey all the due signs and summons. This is also from the Masonic Handbook, page 183. Whenever you see any of our signs made by a brother Mason, and especially the grand hailing sign of distress, you must always be sure to obey them. And even at the risk of your life, if you are on a jury and the defendant is a mason and makes the grand hailing sign you must obey it you must disagree with your brother jurors if necessary but you must be very sure not to bring the mason guilty for that would bring disgrace upon our order it may be perjury to be sure but to do this then you're fulfilling your obligation and you know if you live up to your obligation you'll be free from sin he goes on to say furthermore that I will keep the secrets of a brother Master Mason as inviolable as my own. That's in the handbook, page 183 also. You must conceal all the crimes of your brother Mason except murder and treason, and these only at your own option. And should you be summoned as a witness against a brother Mason, be always sure to shield him. Don't tell the whole truth in this case. Keep his secrets. Forget the most important points. It may be perjury to do this, it is true, but you're keeping your obligations, and remember, if you live up to your obligations strictly, you'll be free from sin. Furthermore, that I will not cheat, wrongfully fraud a lodge of master masons or a brother of this degree. If you cheat, wrong, or defraud any other society or individual, it is entirely your own business. 
If you cheat, the government, even masonry, cannot and will not touch you. But be very careful not to cheat, wrong, or defraud a brother mason or a lodge. Whoever else you may defraud, live up to your obligation, and you'll be free from sin. Furthermore, that I will not strike a brother master mason. Whether you quarrel with or strike other men is none of our business, but your obligation enjoins you not to strike a brother master mason. It may be wicked and sinful to be sure to strike any man or to quarrel with anybody, but our rules make no provision except for the protection of masons only, and if you live in your strict obedience to your obligations, you'll be free from sin. Furthermore, that I will not violate the chastity of a master's wife, mother, sister, or daughter, knowing them to be such. This is also on page 184 of the handbook. This gives you full permission, my dear sir, to do as you please outside the Masonic order, but you must always respect the female relatives of Masons. Adultery is a great crime under any circumstances, it is true, but so long as you live in strict obedience to your master Masonic obligation, You'll be free from sin. I'll go a little bit further. And furthermore, that I will not give the Grand Masonic Word except upon the five points of fellowship, and then only in a low breath. Whether you swear or take God's name in vain doesn't matter much. Of course, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you know, does not amount to anything. But the Maha Bone, oh the horror, you must never, on any account, speak the awful name aloud. That would be a most heinous crime, unmasonic and unpardonable. You are recommended, it is true, not to take the name of God in vain, but to speak of Him with reverence. But then, you know, you have solemnly sworn not to take the Maha Bone, the name of the great Masonic God, in vain. And you must be very sure to keep your obligation, for he who lives in strict obedience to his Masonic obligation is free from sin. And the very last one, and I hope... I'm not boring you to death. He says, Binding myself under no less a penalty than of having my throat cut across and my tongue torn out by its roots. This is handbook, page 74. When a brother reveals any of our great secrets, whenever a brother reveals a great secret, whenever, for instance, he tells of anything about Boaz or Tubal-Cain or that awful Maha Bone, or even whenever a minister prays in the name of Christ, any of our assemblies, you must always hold yourself in readiness, if called upon, to cut his throat from ear to ear, pull out his tongue by the roots, and bury his body at the bottom of some lake or pond. Of course, all this must be done in secret, as, as it was the case of that notorious man Morgan, for both law and civilization are opposed to such barbarous crimes. But then you know you must live up to your obligation and so long as you have sworn to do it by being very strict and obedient in the matter, you'll be free from sin. And we can say that those rules and those laws don't apply and that that was something written a long, long time ago. That's fine. But it should be mentioned. He says, uh, Remembering the unchangeable landmark on the exclusion of all sectarian tenets and the rejection of the name of Christ from all lodge prayers, we shall be better able to understand and more fully to appreciate the true purport of the cunningly devised fable set forth by Freemasonry in the following extracts. That was Mackey's Manual of the Lodge. 
These oaths and promises are dangerous in any count, any way, anyhow. In the Traditions of Freemasonry by Pearson, we read, We may not call into question the propriety of this organization or the despotic character of Masonry. If we would be Masons, we must yield private judgment. And in Webb's Monitor, it says, Right or wrong, his very existence as a Mason hangs upon the obedience to the powers immediately set above him. The one unpardonable crime in a Mason is disobedience. So you must obey the Lodge. And that's dangerous. That's very dangerous. I think this is the most important because it basically says that once you are a Mason, even if you leave the Lodge, you are bound to those oaths and those promises. In Webb's Monitor by Morris, 240, we read, Under the Covenant, The covenant is irrevocable. Even though a Mason may be suspended or expelled, though he may withdraw from the Lodge, journey into countries where Masons cannot be found, or become a subject of despotic governments that persecute or communicate that of bigoted churches that denounce Masonry, he cannot cast off or nullify his Masonic covenant. No law of the land can affect it. No anathema of the church can weaken it. It is irrevocable. So my friends, I just want you to think about all the things I mentioned and talked about. No, everything in Masonry is not bad, negative, or evil. But it is the end game. It is the end goal. And I believe... Personally, the more I study it, it's very much connected with the New World Order and the thought beliefs of the people who rule behind the scenes, rule the governments behind the scenes. And I believe that we have Freemasonic adherence to this globalist agenda high up in every, probably nearly every government. And you'll see these leaders greeting each other with the five points of fellowship without others knowing it. And it makes me wonder how many of these world leaders are not Freemasons and haven't sworn blood oaths to uphold one another and do business with one another. What kind of promises have they made? What kind of pacts have they made? And I just think that it's important to look beyond the headlines, look beyond the whole Russia is evil, Iran's evil, North Korea's evil, you know, these, these ones, these, these governments, China is evil. We always are told they're evil. Well, every government can be evil and probably is evil to a certain degree because absolute power corrupts absolutely. But it makes me wonder how many of these governments are actually in bed with our government at the top. Now, I've talked about this before, but if you're new to listening to this, I just want you to think about it. What better way could these government leaders, on behalf of themselves, their cronies in corporate America, corporate world, uh, international corporate business and banking, what better way could they control their people than to use each other's countries as boogeymen. Because fear gets people rally. It makes people rally. It makes us rally. It made us rally under 
And then they started taking freedoms away. Oh, if you want us to protect you from that enemy, Islam, the war on terror, the whole radical Muslims and, you know, that whole thing, then you're going to have to give us, give up some of your freedom here and there. You're going to have to deal with some debt. You're going to have to deal with different things that are, it's going to make you less free. It's going to take some of your liberties away. It's going to, uh, we're going to have to spy on you. We're going to have to search you, just all kinds of different things. We're going to have to put you on lists. So uh, we that's always the way we lose freedom is through these foreign enemies or these threats of foreign enemies. And I think that uh, I think this is all connected, ladies and gentlemen. I, I really do. And, uh, you know, will we ever know for sure? I, I can't say, but I think that, uh, again, go check out uh, Altian's Altian Child's five-hour-long diatribe on how celebrities and world leaders are Freemasons and are in these secret societies and have blood oaths to one another. Um, and maybe Freemasonry is not the only one, but you see, Freemasonry is the most, you know, it's the most prevalent, the most popular, and we know that there's been dozens of offshoots of Freemasonry, so it makes you wonder... There's probably societies, groups that we don't even know about, fraternities that we don't even know about. So. I want to go back to the book by Ralph Epperson, Masonry, Conspiracy Against Christianity. And this book mostly is a commentary on Albert Pike's morals and dogma. So what I do is when Epperson has a quote in this book that he says is Pike's, I just go over to the PDF I have of morals and dogma and check it to make sure. And so far, I haven't found any misquotes. And he mentions a couple other books that Pike wrote as well. He's got some quotes from them. So I will say something if it's not from Morals and Dogma. But uh, he's just talking about the adepts and the whole idea that the adept Masons at the higher levels know things, of course, that the lower levels don't. Uh, he says on Morals and Dogma, page 849, Pike says, It is for the adepts to understand the meaning of the symbols. Uh, you know, and I've talked about how Pike and, and Manly P. Hall talked about that quite a bit. It says, If you desire to find and to gain admission to the sanctuary, we have said enough to show you the way. If you do not, it is useless for us to say any more, as it has been useless to say so much. That's going back to the profane masses. I get it to a certain degree, but like even when I had New York Patriot on, he said in the Ordo Templi Orientis, in the show he does with his co-host Lux, who was in the Golden Dawn, they realized that those guys hide things from them too. And they actually believe that all these occult groups, or most of these occult groups, 
are connected at the top in the higher degrees. So it says here too, let's see, this is page 871. It says, if you reflect, my brother, you will no doubt suspect that some secret meaning was concealed in these words. On 370, he says, You, the mason who is proceeding through the rituals, have received only hints of the true objects and purposes of the mysteries. Be content, therefore, and await patiently advent of the greater light. On page 218, he says, It is for each individual mason to discover the secret of masonry. Masonry does not inculcate her truths. She states them once and briefly, or hints them, perhaps darkly, or interposes a cloud between them and the eyes that would be dazzled by them. Uh, 2.19, he says, The rite raises a corner of the veil. I guess he's talking about the Scottish rite. The rite raises the corner of the veil, even in the degree of apprentice. For it is there, it declares, that masonry is a worship. So, he says there that masonry is indeed a worship. And you see that, and I've talked about it in other episodes, that in certain parts of Morals and Dogma, he does call it a religion. And then at other times, he says it's not. So, it's kind of uh, mixed signals there. And I've probably mentioned this one on previous shows, but on page 104 of Morals and Dogma, he says... Masonry conceals its secrets from all except the adepts and sages or the elect and uses false explanations and misinterpretations of its symbols to mislead those who deserve only to be misled, to conceal the truth which it calls light from them and to draw them away from it. And then there's the other famous quote uh, on page 19. The blue degrees are but the outer court or portico. Part of the symbols are displayed there to initiates, but they are intentionally misled by false interpretations. And then, from his book, Legenda, it's pretty close to Lavenda, right? It was never intended that the mass of Masons should know the meaning of the blue degrees. Masonry permits the utterance of false interpretations, which serve the double purpose of misleading the ignorant, the idle, and the indolent, whom it is desirable to lead astray, and of indirectly indicating to the wise and the studious the true way leading toward the light. And also in Legenda, he apparently says, the blue degrees, where no symbol receives its true explanation. And uh, on 8.17, he's speaking about the Templars, and he says, the Templars, like all other secret orders and associations, had two doctrines, one concealed and one reserved for the masters the other public. And one thing about masonry is it definitely puts forth the idea that there are no absolutes. And I get that to a certain degree, but I think it's really troublesome that Pike never really specifies that obviously there are times when it's wrong to do certain things and when it's right to do certain things. So uh, he says, you know, the quote from page 324 of Morals and Dogma, What is superior is at last that which is inferior, and what is below is that which is above. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing means nothing. That's the way I look at it. You can look at it two different ways. Obviously, there are resemblances from the world above to the world below. There's natural things that have resemblances. 
there's all kinds of different ways you can take this, but I think they take it too far, a lot of these occultists, and I really think it's dangerous. So back to what I was saying before, this is a book from Pike called Magnum Opus, and he says masonry is not a religion. So, you know, they ask you, my brother, there are several questions that we must ask you. What is your religious belief? They have to ask you that before you enter the lodge. So they get to know your religious belief. But then they tell you lots of different things about what they believe. But this is no different, really, to going way back to the kings who were adepts, who supposedly had this knowledge that they wouldn't let other people know. And according to a book I read by, uh, I think his name is Eric Hornung. He was a German scholar of Egypt, Egyptology. He did a great book on the history of Egypt, and he said that even the, king, like, even the people who worked for the kings most of the time were not allowed to know the secret knowledge. Uh, so he says here on page 13 of Magnum Opus, and they're talking about the 29th degree, the Mason's Creed goes further than that. No man it holds has any right in any way to interfere with the religious belief of another. It holds that each man is absolutely sovereign as to his own belief, and that beliefs, and that belief is a matter absolutely foreign to all who do not entertain the same belief. Okay, so, you know, I understand that. I mean, no one should force a belief on you. That's not faith. That's not being saved. That's not real spirituality or religion. But uh, here he says on 213 of Morals and Dogma, every Masonic Lodge is a temple of religion and its teachings are instructions in religion. Uh, in Legenda, he says, so Masonry teaches the people that Masonry is the pure and primitive religion. And you remember before, he said that it is worship. Uh, the, the quote was, and it was from Magnum Opus, the ancient and accepted rite raises a corner of the veil, even in the degree of apprentice, for in that degree it declares that masonry is a worship. So it's pretty evident that masonry is a religion. I mean, it has all the trappings of religion. Even though they try to explain it away in certain ways, uh, there's just no doubt about it. In the Secret Teachings of All Ages, Manly P. Hall says, Despite statements to the contrary, Masonry is a religion seeking to unite God and man by elevating its initiates to that level of consciousness whereon they can behold the clarity and the vision of workings of the great architect of the universe, the God of Masons. Okay, so one thing that I will say that I thought was really interesting that Everson brings up in this book that I never thought about, you know, they talk about the uh, the god of masonry, right? They call him the grand architect of the universe. Well, Everson says an architect designs. He doesn't create. And so he actually has another quote in here from, I believe, Pike, which I may or may not get to. And he says that Osiris was not a creator god. So it just made me think that by saying the grand architect of the universe is not a creator, he is a designer. Uh, it's a different way of looking at God. 
and I thought it was very interesting and maybe relates back to them believing that man is God. Man can become God. They will become a God when they become at the adept level. They will become godlike. So Pike says again in Magnum Opus regarding the 13th degree, So every Masonic Lodge is a temple of religion. It's officers, ministers of religion. It's teachings, instructions in religion. So right there, he admits it. And no matter what they say, of course, Albert Pike is the granddaddy of Freemasonry. Uh, He wrote the different decrees. He created the decrees. So, you know, that's... Of course, some Masons say that's not true as well. You know, I... uh, was reading from uh, C.W. Leadbeater, who was a theosophist, but wrote books about Freemasonry as well. I guess he was a Mason as well. He was a 33rd, I guess. Yeah, because it's got a picture of him there in his Masonic garb in the front of the book. But, um, you know, he has a totally different idea of their origins. Uh, he has a different idea of what the checkerboard floor represents. So it's a little frustrating and kind of hard to understand why there's such a difference in some of these beliefs. I understand that Christianity has different beliefs as well, and there's different sects of it, but we believe in the same origins. There's certain basic things that almost all believe in, unless they're these like fringe, uh, fringe institutions or whatever you would call it. And just a couple more before I get out of here. This is a quote by Manly P. Hall. He says, The Arcana of the ancient mysteries were never revealed to the profane except through the media of symbols. And he also said the proposition that concealed within the emblematic figures, allegories, and rituals of the ancients is a secret doctrine concerning the inner mysteries of life, which doctrine has been preserved in total among a small band of initiated minds since the beginning of the world. So that really blows John Robeson's ideas of masonry only starting in the Middle Ages. I don't know what I believe because I've read both accounts. And uh, I kind of think that Robeson may be right as far as officially starting. Of course, there were mystery cults and uh, different initiations. And it seems like the three degrees goes back quite a long ways. And another thing that Epperson brought up that uh, I thought was kind of interesting is in the Bible, one-third of the angels rebelled. They left with Satan to rebel against God. And the fallen angels are directly related to masonry, as well as the Nephilim and the Watchers. So that may be another reason why the number 3 and 33 is so important to them. And as I mentioned before, how masonry, and especially Pike here, really teaches that there are new absolutes. So there are no absolute morals, even though he calls his book Morals and Dogma. And Eberson says that Masons have something called situation ethics, which is a system of ethics according to which moral rules are not absolutely binding, but may be modified in the light of specific situations. Now, that, I can dig that, but I do, as again, I think that it's, it's troublesome that... Pike does not differentiate because that's one of my biggest problems with occultists taking duality too far to the point that 
nothing means anything, right? And I, you know, I talk about that all the time. But it says here, uh, Pike said on page 37 of Morals and Dogma, all truths are truths of period, not truths of eternity. Uh, he says also on page 52, what is untrue today may become true in another generation. On page 160, he says, No human being can with certainty say what is truth, or that he is surely in possession of it. So everyone should feel that it is quite possible that another equally honest and sincere with himself, and yet holding the contrary opinion, may himself be in possession of truth. Uh, 163, 65, and 66, he stated, is not confined to set forms of thought, of action, or of feeling. He accepts what his mind regards as true, what his conscience decides is right. All else puts far from him. His mind acts after the universal law of intellect, his conscience according to the universal law of each. No man is entitled positively to assert that he is right, where other men, equally intelligent and equally well-informed, hold directly the opposite opinion. When men entertain opinions diametrically opposed to each other, and each is honest, who shall decide which hath the truth? Page 167. No man has any right in any way to interfere with the religious belief of another. Well, that's true. And to get to the end here on page 833, Pike says, It is not true to say that one man, however little, must not be sacrificed to another, however great, to a majority or to all men. That is not only a fallacy, but a most dangerous one. Often one man and many men must be sacrificed, in the ordinary sense of the term, to the interest of the many, for the greater good, right? And he repeated the thought on 834. He says, the interest and even the life of one man must often be sacrificed to the interest and welfare of his country. Another thing I just wanted to add quickly while we're talking about it, I looked up the word corona in the PDF version of Morals and Dogma, and it pulls up 15 different results. And in one result, it's talking about the supreme crown, corona, summa, kether. It says, wherein were contained in potence all the remaining numerations so that they were not distinguishable from it. Precisely as in man exist the four elements in potence specifically undistinguishable, so in this corona were in potence all the ten enumerations specifically undistinguishable. This crown, it is added, was called after the restoration, the cause of causes, and the ancient of ancients. The point Kether adds to the introduction was the aggregate of all ten, when it first emanated, it consisted of all the ten, and the light which extended from the emanative principle simultaneously flowed into it, and beheld the two universals, that is, the unities out of which manifoldness flows. For example, the idea within the deity of humanity as a unit out of which the individuals were to flow, the vessel or receptacle containing this emitted light and the light itself within it, and this light is the substance of the point kether, for the will of God is the soul of all things that are. Of course, this is referring to the tree of life and Kabbalah and the spheres. Uh, here is another quote, and I'll have to really look into this to better understand it. Maybe we could have 
New York Patriot on to actually talk to us about it because he would understand better. It says here, the whole, says the book's mystery or occultation is the summed up. The intention of God, the blessed, was to form impersonations in order to diminish the light. Wherefore, he constituted in macro prosopos Adam Cadmon, or Eric Anpin, three heads. The first is called the head whereof is no cognition, the second the head of that which is non-existent, and the third the very head of the macro prosopos. And these three are called Corona, Sapentia, and Informatio, Kether, Hakama, and Bina, existent in the corona of world emanation, or the macro prosopos, Attica, Kadisha, Senex, Sanctissimus, the most holy ancient. But the seven inferior royalties of the first Adam are called the Ancient of Days, and this Ancient of Days is the internal part or the soul of the macro prosopos. Now, what is the macro prosopos? I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but representing one of the four magical elements in the Kabbalah and probably representing one of the four simple elements, air, water, earth, or fire. Macro prosopos means creator of the great world. And I'll read one more quote about Corona. It just mentions Corona in here. And it's also, of course, about Kabbalah. It says, And when he again ascended, he left behind him the productive light of the letter. He and thereof was constituted another sphere within the sphere of splendor, which lesser sphere is termed in the Sohar, Kether Ela, Corona Summa, the Supreme Crown, and also Atika di Atikim, Antiquus Antiquium, the Ancient of Ancients, and even Aut Ha Aut, and even Aut Ha Aut, Causa Causarum, the Cause of Causes. But the crown is very far smaller than the Sphere of Splendor, so that within the latter an immense unoccupied place and space is still left. And okay, I'm going to leave you guys with this closing quote. I know I've dragged the show out quite a bit, but I just keep finding more stuff that I want to add, and I want you to know it. So, this is a fellow by the name of W.F. Brainerd at New London, Connecticut, before the Union Lodge. Now, granted, this was 1825, and that was a long time ago. But if you think about how if the governments were filled with Freemasons who had sworn these solemn oaths to one another, and we know that quite a few of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were, in fact, Masons, and we know that other men in government have been Masons, then just listen to this and think about how it may pertain to our government and the people that rule behind the scenes even today. He says, what is masonry now? It is powerful. It comprises men of rank, wealth, office and talent, in power and out of power, and that in almost every place where power is of any importance. And it comprises, among other classes of the community, to the lowest and large numbers, active men united together and capable of being directed by the efforts of others so as to have the force of concert through the civilized world. 
They are distributed too with the means of knowing one another and the means of keeping secret and the means of cooperating in the desk, in the legislative hall, on the bench, in every gathering of business, in every party of pleasure, in every enterprise of government, in every domestic circle, in peace and in war, among enemies and friends, in one place as well as in another. So powerful indeed is at this time that it fears nothing from violence, either public or private, for it has every means to learn it in season to counteract, defeat, and punish it. It's pretty heavy, right? With that, I don't want to bore you any further. Uh, thank you for listening, as always. Hope you got something out of this. I thank all my wonderful patrons for supporting me. And if you would like to support me and become a member of the Society of the Cryptic Savants, also, please, please share. Because it's hard to get our stuff out there. And it ain't cheap to advertise. So please share the show. Please tweet the show. And uh, share it on whatever platform you want. Share it with your friends. And give me a good rating, if you don't mind, on whatever platform you use to listen to this on. And I can't wait to talk to you next. i got lots of fun stuff in store on the, in the coming months, Lord willing. So, with that being said, cheers and blessings to you all. And remember, their order is not our order. See ya. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. There is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. And so it is to the printing press, to the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. And as the weaving spiders spin their web of death, across the globe, the victims of deception will be met. Awaken
see a new world coming into view. A world in which there is the very real prospect of a new world order. President Bush said, he's afraid that I often use myself, that we needed a new world order. We've got to give them a stake in creating the kind of uh, world order that I think all of us would like to see. I think the new world order is emerging. We have a real chance at this new world order. An order in which incredible United Nations and use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN.